Good evening, everyone. Today I'm going to be talking about sin. To commit sin is willfully disobeying God's commandment or fail to act in righteousness. Disciple knowledge of the truth. In James 4.17 it says, Therefore, to whom he that knoweth to do good and doeth to it not to him it is sin. The Lord has said that he cannot look upon the sin with the last degree of knowledge. Sin results in withdrawing of the Holy Ghost. It makes that one who sin unable to dwell in the presence of Heavenly Fathers, for no unclean thing can dwell with God. Other than Jesus Christ, each person who has ever lived on earth has broken commandments or failed to act according to knowledge or of the truth that Apostle John taught. If we say that we have no sin, not sin, or did the act ourselves as the truth is not in us, in us. If we confuse our sin, Jesus Christ is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to clean, cleanse us from unrighteousness. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, each person can repent and be forgiven of those sins. In Romans 3.23 it says, For those have sinned and command short of the glory of God. And then, Romans, Romans 6.23 it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then one more scripture. Alma 11.37 says, And I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins, for I cannot deny in his words. And he has said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can we be saved except you inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, we cannot be saved in, the, in your sins. I'm going to talk a little bit more, but I'm going to do a talk. Sin and Suffering by President Dylan H. Oaks. Oh, if you want to read that, you can. We're just love and mercy meet. This is a, a April 2015 General Conference. for the remarkably personal candor of that remarkable council. Without safety ropes or harnesses or climbing gear of any kind, two brothers, Jimmy, aged 14, and John, aged 19, though that's not their real names, attempted to scale a sheer canyon wall in Snow Canyon State Park in my native southern Utah. Near the top of their laborious climb, 
they discovered that a protruding ledge denied them their final few feet of ascent. They could not get over it, but neither could they now retreat from it. They were stranded. After careful maneuvering, John, the older, found enough footing to boost his younger brother to safety on the top of the ledge. But there was no way to lift himself. The more he strained to find finger or foot leverage, the more his muscles began to cramp. Panic started to sweep over him and he began to fear for his life. Unable to hold on much longer, John decided his only option was to try to jump vertically in an effort to grab the top of the overhanging ledge. If successful, he might, by his considerable arm strength, pull himself to safety. In his own words, he said, prior to my jump, I told Jimmy to go search for a tree branch strong enough to extend down to me, although I knew there was nothing of the kind on that rocky summit. It was only a desperate ruse. If my jump failed, the least I could do was make certain my little brother did not see me falling to my death. Giving him enough time to be out of sight, I said my last prayer that I wanted my family to know I loved them and that Jimmy could make it home safely on his own. Then I leapt. There was enough adrenaline in my spring that the jump extended my arms above the ledge almost to my elbows. But as I slapped my hands down on the surface, I felt nothing, nothing but loose sand on flat stone. I can still remember the gritty sensation, he says, of hanging there with nothing to hold on to, no lip, no ridge, nothing to grab or grasp. I felt my fingers begin to recede slowly over the sandy surface. I knew my life was over. But then suddenly, like a lightning strike in a summer storm, two hands shot out from somewhere above the edge of the cliff grabbing my wrists with a strength and a determination that belied their size. My faithful little brother had not gone looking for any fictitious tree branch. Guessing exactly what I was planning to do, he had never moved an inch. He had simply waited, silently, almost breathlessly, knowing full well I would be foolish enough to try to make that jump. When I did, he grabbed me, 
he helped me and he refused to let me fall. Those strong brotherly arms saved my life that day as I dangled helplessly above what surely would have been certain death. My beloved brothers and sisters, today is Easter Sunday. Although we should always remember, we promise in our weekly sacramental prayer that we will, nevertheless, this is the most sacred day of the year for special remembrance of brotherly hands and determined arms that reached into the very abyss of death to save us from our fallings and our failings, from our sorrows and from our sins. Against the background of this story reported to me by John's and Jimmy's family, I express my gratitude for the atonement and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge events in the divine plan of God that led up to and give meaning to the love Jesus offers us. In our increasingly secular society, it is as uncommon as it is unfashionable to speak of Adam and Eve or the Garden of Eden or a fortunate fall into mortality. Nevertheless, the simple truth is that we cannot fully comprehend the atonement and resurrection of Christ and we will not adequately appreciate the unique purpose of his birth or his death. In other words, there's no way to truly celebrate Christmas or Easter without understanding that there was an actual Adam and Eve who fell from an actual Eden with all the consequences that fall carried with it. I do not know the details of what happened on this planet before that. But I do know these two were created under the divine hand of God that for a time they lived alone in a paradisical setting where there was neither human death nor future family and that through a sequence of choices they transgressed a commandment of God which required that they leave their garden setting but which allowed them to have children before facing physical death. To add further sorrow and complexity to their circumstance, their transgression had spiritual consequences as well, cutting them off from the presence of God forever. Because we were then born into that fallen world, and because we too would transgress the laws of God, we also were sentenced to the same penalties that... and Eve faced. What a plight. The entire human race in freefall. 
every man, woman, and child in it, physically tumbling toward permanent death, spiritually plunging toward eternal anguish. Is that what life was meant to be? Is this the grand finale of the human experience? Are we all just hanging in a cold canyon somewhere in an indifferent universe? Each of us searching for a toehold, each of us seeking, seeking for something to help, something to grip, with nothing but the feeling of sand sliding under our fingers. Nothing to save us, nothing to hold on to, much less anything to hold on to us. Is our only purpose in life an empty existential exercise, simply to leap as high as we can, hang on for our prescribed three score years and 10, and then fail, then fall and keep falling forever? The answer to those questions is an unequivocal and eternal no. With prophets ancient and modern, I testify that all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Thus, from the moment those first parents stepped out of the Garden of Eden, the God and Father of us all, anticipating Adam and Eve's decision, dispatched the very angels of heaven to declare to them and down through time to us that the entire sequence was designed for our eternal happiness. It was part of his divine plan which provided for a savior, the very son of God himself, another Adam, the apostle Paul would call him, who would come in the meridian of time to atone for the first Adam's transgression. That atonement would achieve complete victory over physical death, unconditionally granting resurrection to every person who has been born or ever will be born into this world. Mercifully, it would also provide forgiveness for the personal sins of all from Adam to the end of the world conditioned upon repentance and obedience to divine commandments. As one of his ordained witnesses, I declare this Easter morning that Jesus of Nazareth was and is that savior of the world, the last Adam, the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and Omega, of eternal life. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And from the prophet patriarch Lehi, Adam fell that men might be. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. Most thoroughly of all, the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob, taught as part of a two-day sermon on the atonement of Jesus Christ, 
that the resurrection must come by reason of the fall. So today, we celebrate the gift of victory over every fall we've ever experienced, every sorrow we've ever known, every discouragement we've ever had, every fear we've ever faced, to say nothing of resurrection from death and forgiveness for our sins. That victory is available to us because of events that transpired on a weekend precisely like this more than two millennia ago in Jerusalem. Beginning in the spiritual anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane, moving to the crucifixion on a cross at Calvary, and concluding on a beautiful Sunday morning inside a donated tomb, a sinless, pure, and holy man, the very Son of God himself, did what no other deceased person had ever done nor ever could do. Under his own power, he rose from death, never to have his body separated from his spirit again. Of his own volition, he shed the burial linen with which he had been bound, carefully putting the burial napkin that had been placed over his face in a place by itself, the scripture says. That first Easter sequence of atonement and resurrection constitutes the most consequential moment, the most generous gift, the most excruciating pain, and the most majestic manifestation of pure love ever to be demonstrated in the history of this world. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, suffered, died, and rose from death in order that he could, like lightning in a summer storm, grasp us as we fell, held us with his might, and through our obedience to his commandments, lift us to eternal life. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us, that Jesus still stands triumphant over death, although he stands on wounded feet. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us, that he still extends unending grace, although he extends it with pierced palms and scarred wrists. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that we can sing before a sweat-stained garden, a nail-driven cross, and a gloriously empty tomb. How great, how glorious, how complete. Redemption's 
grand design where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine. In the sacred name of the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, amen. That's by President Russell M. Nelson. Uh, not Russell M. Nelson. Sorry. Uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Sorry about that. I meant to say, where justice, love, and mercy meet. That's in the April 2015, April 2015 General Conference. This is about sin. Sometimes people are sin. No one's perfect in this life. Just feel like when... You see mud and it gets all over your body, all over your truck. It's dirty. That's what sin feels like. When you get dirty, when you go to church every Sunday and take the sacrament, you wash all that mud away. But you will sin again. That's why Jesus Christ came down to this earth, repent, and died on the cross for our sins. Everybody has sins. No one's perfect. We try our best every single day to not to sin. But sometimes it happens. This is why I explained about the mud. Sometimes mud comes up in your life. And you have to repent. And that when repent goes and turns all white or all clean. When you like wash your truck every day. Or you take a shower from that mud. You get all of your all the dust you get. It's another form of sinning. You wash that away. You're all clean. You remember of your baptism covenant when you were baptized at eight years old or you were coming to the church. You remember those covenants you took when you got baptized. You wash all your sins away, but you're still going to sin. So when you act upon you act upon and repent on your sins, you'll be forgiven every single day. No one's perfect. I promise you that when you sin, please repent. You will be blessed. I've sinned so many times. I repent. And I work on my other things I've done. And you will be blessed. I promise you that when you sin, Heavenly Father will bless you every single day of your life. When you sin, you see things that happens to you, but repent. No one's perfect. Heavenly Father is there to protect you from your sins. But only if you repent. And you'll feel happy inside when you repent to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. He's there for you. I promise that when you sin, Heavenly Father will bless you through your life. I promise you that. I know that the torment of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, that we can sin and we repent. Every single day. I promise you that. I know that when you sin, Heavenly Father is there for you. He's there at single cost. I talked about it. Um, Jeffrey Alhana talked about what mercy loves and mercy meets. You have mercy when you repent. You get mercy. You meet the time when you sin. Repent every single time. I promise that when you sin and repent, You'll be blessed. Your family will be blessed. I say this name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you have a good week and a good weekend. Rest of the week. 
talk to you later. Love you. Bye-bye.